Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This conversation is with Nick Temple, the chief executive of the social investment business. I haven't had anyone from the social investment space on the podcast yet, but I thought it was high time that I did. It can play an incredibly impactful role in public services and in support of the organizations delivering public services. So I thought for our listeners, it would be an interesting topic to really dig into. Nick and I talk about the work of the social investment business, their priorities around reducing inequality and starting to think about net zero. We talk about the different ways in which social investment can be structured and how that initial investment from a social investor can open up investment from other types of organisations. I'm sure you've all heard of social impact bonds. Well, we talk about those and specifically what they are and how they work and how they can support you if you're trying to deliver public services. And finally, we talk about how social investment can dovetail with government spending and the government programs that fund particular innovations. They can often develop into a program of work that is funded by social investors. So there is something quite interesting there. And I'm very interested, as you'll see during this conversation, to try and understand if some of that Silicon Valley entrepreneurial investment approach can be introduced to public services. And as you'll see, it's more difficult than it might seem. Nick, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. I feel like I've known you for over 10 years now, ever since we set up Mutual Ventures. But for those listening who might not know who you are, can you just say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I'm already feeling old because you said it's 10 years. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, my um, I'm currently chief executive at, at Social Investment Business, and, and we'll get into that a bit more when we speak later. But before that, I spent about six or seven years at Social Enterprise UK, 
um, particularly working with the mutual and spin-out organisations that come out of public services. And then before that, I was at the School for Social Entrepreneurs, um, helping start up an earlier stage organisations and, and franchising that model around the country. So I'm pretty knee deep in social enterprise and social investment at this stage. Yeah, I think certainly since since we started Mutual Ventures, you were always a very key person to know and to engage with. How did you get interested in this as an area? Because when you started getting involved, particularly with the School for Social Entrepreneurs, it was much more niche maybe than it is now. Yeah, to be honest, I did a literature degree, which, you know, is of no use to anyone, arguably, as my dad would say. But like... um, that led me to uh, an advert, which was uh, for a publishing assistant or something like that. But it turned out that the little publishing job was at a charity, really small charity. There were three, four members of staff, um, but it made its it made its money by doing books and getting book deals associated with the causes it was yeah. uh, working on. And that was where my interest grew, really, because it was just like, OK, so you can you can do good stuff. You can be aiming to to change people's lives and have a social purpose, but you can earn your own money towards it. And then yeah. obviously it was very apparent to me that the money we were earning was much freer and more unrestricted and we could use it in different ways. So that was the kind of, I was very fortunate completely by accident to land, I guess, in a, in a small charity that earned most of its income. Uh, and so that, that mix of trading and social purpose was, was there from the start really. And that's what sort of piqued my interest and got me into that world. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, so let's talk about your current role in the social investment business. So what are you trying to achieve there? Yeah, so social investment business has been around for about 20 years and we do we do three things, really. We do social investment, which we'll talk about a lot more, mm-hmm. um, so primarily investment into social enterprises and charities. Um, we do grant partnerships and grants for business support, again, for the similar set of organisations. And we also try and look at all the work we do and really analyze the data and track record and evidence that comes out of that. And really what we're focused on is building a more resilient and effective social economy, as we would call it, the social enterprises, charities, organizations that work in that field in order to create a more equal society. That's our sort of that's our reason for being, if you like. And the way we do that is through finance and support. So, you know, we do that through a range of kind of grants grants and loans, you know, different types of of finance, but also different types of support to try and get organisations in a better place to grow, to thrive, to sustain, to be more effective and to be able to support the communities and people that they work with. And do you invest your own capital or is it mostly managing funds for government, for instance? It's a bit of both, to be honest. So historically, it was definitely primarily government. We did about 320 million of government social investment funds, uh, sort of around 2008 to 2012, and still manage some of those today. Um, And then increasingly, the sort of partners and investors we've worked with has sort of broadened out. So that might be charitable foundations, um, organisations in our field, like Big Society Capital. But also we got endowed some money midway through our life and um so we also now use our own capital in different ways to try and invest as well so a bit of a mix so managing yeah for other people managing other people's money but also sometimes managing and and using our own in interesting ways as well and so obviously there's a huge number of areas that you could focus on do you have focus areas are there particular 
things that as an organization you prioritize over others? We haven't historically. We're starting to get into that at the moment. So I think a sharper focus on equality and tackling inequality, and that is really primarily about kind of geographic inequality. Um, Leveling up. You can call it that, certainly, or left behind areas or, you know, there's any number of um, uh, different different sets of uh, words that we can use. But, yeah, definitely leveling up and and understanding, I suppose, what where is that most needed? You know, the pandemic has reshaped the economic geography a bit as well. And I think also, but also about de- what we would call demographic inequality. So who who does our money go to and are they the same people that have been getting it for 20 years and have good access to it? Or is it groups and organisations and communities that have had less access to that previously? Um, and we're also increasingly interested in net zero meets just transition. It would, again, more terminology, but you know, how, how do we support our those organisations I talked about, charities and social enterprises, towards net zero in a way that's fair and equitable for the people they work with and employ and also for the people they work with. Yeah. So how do you make sure that your funding goes to areas, particularly you know, geographic areas, as you're saying, that need levelling up? Because I have in my mind the government's levelling up white paper that certainly the rhetoric is about levelling up left behind areas. But actually, when you look at some of the missions, it's more about you know, a rising tide lifts all lifts all boats, you know, so it, it, it sort of softens that laser focus that you might have thought would have been in the levelling up white paper. So I'm just interested in, in your organisation, how, how you actually do that, that targeting. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it varies, to be honest, depending on the nature of the funds and the programmes we're running. And we've always done it, to be honest. So even some of our larger historical funds, you know, about over 40 percent of the money went into the top 20 percent most deprived areas by indices of multiple deprivation um so i think we we do it in a range of ways sometimes we monitor the portfolio so in a fund you might you know you know you kind of keep an eye on what's the geographical nature of what's coming through is it too london centric is it big cities are there gaps in terms of what we're reaching kind of assess it as the portfolio builds um in other instances, you might build it very much into the criteria. So literally, you kind of narrow, in a sense, or prioritise that sort of or weight the, that in, in the process of what you do. And we do a bit of both, to be honest, in terms of achieving that. It just depends how prescriptive we want to be in terms of what we're trying to do. And then you also mentioned net zero and the transition to net zero. What sort of things are you doing in that area? Yeah, to be honest, we're at uh, an earlier stage on that stuff, Andrew, so yep. I won't overpromise on that. I mean, what we are thinking about is because we've um, invested and supported so many community-based organisations, we're just aware that there's a big potential for kind of retrofitting and, and how do we make that estate, if you like, as a collective, as energy efficient as possible, and how do we support them to do that? And so we're starting to think that through in terms of energy implications. And um, I mean, everybody, every organisation that, that you work with will have to have an approach to how they're contributing. So it's probably going to work its way through everything you do, yeah. particularly chasing it or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we're thinking about both about particular funds and programmes and initiatives we might run or pilot. But also, as you say, frankly, how do we embed this across everything we do? Because that's that's where it's going to get to. It feels a bit like sort of five years ago when everyone was like you know you must have a digital aspect to what you do and now that just seems yeah. kind of like well 
you know, that's a no-brainer, right? That's just well, Especially we... after the last couple of years, if you, <laughs> yeah. love that, you weren't doing anything. I'm going to ask this next question now in case I forget at the end, but say uh, I'm the chief exec of a third sector organization. How do I get in touch or engage with with you, is it is it usually you invite responses to to a, a particular call out for for funding, or do you go and find organisations to invest in? Yeah, so again, it varies. I mean, you'll be familiar with this, but normally when you're managing a grant fund, you you have to do less marketing potentially because people are excited and interested yes, yes. in the grants that you have. That's not always the case, to be honest. And also, you do have to do some work to make sure that awareness really permeates maybe to some, like we were mentioning, some of those geographies and groups that might not have, have traditionally accessed that money. So we're, it, the, the proactive marketing tends to be more on the loan side where we're, it might require more of a conversation with an organisation to help them understand what what this package of investment could do for them. And so we'll be proactive. We work with introducer organisations, again, in different geographies or with different specialities, and obviously use all the kind of traditional marketing networks. And again, the funds vary. Sometimes it's an open call. Sometimes it's an EOI and then a second stage and so on and so forth. So but generally, we we've built up a good network over the last 20 years of, of organizations we've worked with and, and partners who can help us you know, reach out from from wherever we need to be. And just so listeners have a complete understanding where does your funding come from i presume well i mean i i know from my own experience of engaging with with your organization that traditionally some has come from government some has come from the likes of big society capital where does it come from these days yeah similar mix really so we're um we we have a, a loan fund that's open at the moment that has six or seven investors that's you know there's a social enterprise that's invested in us actually which is great um there's big society capital money in there. There's some charitable foundation money in there. Um, there's the Church of England as an investor in that fund. So very, quite a wide, I was going to say a broad church, but you, that was too much, too obvious from the Church of England perspective. But um, And then in terms of our grant management work and our sort of business support work, then we, we're the strategic grant partner to the Access Foundation yeah. um, and also to Power to Change, who are an organisation set up to support community businesses. Um, and then we have a range of other contracts with local and central government as well. Um, so managing funds or, or advisory work for, for them as well. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, and for us, it's really trying to manage that um, and try and be both proactive where we can be on sort of creating our own opportunities, if you like, and also responsive to the ones that come out that fit with our strategy as well. Thank you. So. Just for some of our listeners, uh, the whole concept of investment and social investment will will be a bit of a mystery. So how is it typical? The first thing you might say is that there's no such thing as a typical investment. But say say I'm a social enterprise, quite small. I, I want to invest in a add-on to the building we're in because I think that will enable us to drive more revenue, win a different contract or something. How how might a typical engagement with social investors work? Yeah, so they would I mean we've got so we've got the recovery loan fund open at the moment. We do on that we can do deals between fifty thousand and one point five million. Everything up to a quarter of a million is completely unsecured. So it could be it could be an investment in people um or growth or expansion not necessarily an, an asset or a building <clears throat> um and we would just talk through 
with the organisation what the needs are. Um, obviously, we need to assess viability, like can they pay this back? Yeah. <laughs> it's still investment. We're obviously interested in social impact. So in our due diligence process, we are, we're assessing the, the sort of traditional risks, if you like, that any investor would kind of governance and leadership and you know financial capability and viability of the business model and so on. But also impact and understanding how this scores on our impact framework. And that's built in yeah. and, and both go to our investment committee. So really, it's working with the organisation to go, well, what's what do you need and and can we provide that? And, you know, certainly not in our interest either to kind of overburden an organisation and put it in a weaker position um, ultimately. So so really it's about that conversation with us and then working out the right package. And sometimes we might have grant to put alongside the loan that makes it more attractive or sometimes we might have support that we can help them with if there are areas where we and they think they're weaker and so on. So that's the nature of it. And we... We see those come through on a regular basis and um, and build the pipeline that way, really. But relationships is, is central to it. Uh, relationships are very central. You, you have to trust. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you put a lot of emphasis on the quality of the management team that you're investing in as well. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's it's a key, it's a key part of, of anything. And, and also the board, actually, because they're they're often taking the you know, the financial and legal responsibility for this investment yeah. as well. And and so actually sometimes you might have a, you know, wonderful FD and senior management, but actually where's the financial uh, skills and, and capabilities and understanding on the board as well. So we'll look at that quite hard um, and also try and understand their markets. But, you know, we're, we also want to take some risk. You know, we we're a charity ourselves. You know, when we, we weren't created to make the maximum return, we were created to make the maximum impact. So we push our committee and and try and take some risk, you know, in the pursuit of that impact as much as we can. Um, and so balancing all of those factors in the decision making and the, the work we do is pretty important. Um, so I, I'm not sure if this is something that you do, but I'm certainly aware of some social investment being used to unlock more traditional mm-hmm. lending. So, for instance, the social investor might put in the first riskier amount and that will then give reassurance to a larger lender who might be able to charge a lower interest rate. You know, so it's sort of structured in that way. Now, I don't know if that's something you guys do, but certainly you'll know all about it. And it would be just interesting to to get your thoughts on on how that that works, essentially. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what you'll find is um, often with kind of, if you like, the mainstream banks and even some of what we would call the social banks, like Charity Bank and Triodos and Unity Trust Bank, um, generally they'll be a little bit more risk averse. So they'll often look for a building to to hang something on, um, but they might not want to do all of the building or they're willing to come in behind an organisation, but as long as someone is kind of beneath them in the mix, if you like, taking the first risk. And we can often play that role, um, partly because we want to in the way that I've just described, and partly because of the nature of our money. We also use the government guarantee scheme, the recovery loan scheme, which allows us, that kind of covers you for some risk as well, because the government wants to encourage that that post-COVID recovery. So we use that and our own money to be able to take some risk um, and, so are you, and, are you finding that you're taking a bit more risk now as organisations need to take risks themselves to try and recover? Yeah, I think we're trying to have what I would describe as a healthy risk appetite. 
you know, and we've always done that. I mean, going back to one of our historical funds quickly that I mentioned, Future Builders, which was a 150 million pound fund set up in 2004. And, and to show how patient we are as an investor, we're still managing that today, some of it. But, you know, that that was able to take quite a lot of risk and, and had a lot of grant alongside the loan. But literally one of the criteria on that fund was that the organisations couldn't get investment from anywhere else. <laughs> and so what was interesting is the risk was kind of built into the fund, if you like. And then what we saw was as as we invested and took the risk on those organisations, they demonstrated they were good for it and they could grow and they could strengthen and they could pay back the investment. And then other organisations, both mainstream and other social investors and social banks, came in behind that and refinanced that money. And that for us is a really good role to play. We're play, kind of playing that catalytic role of, getting the right and, and most effective money to organisations to do what they do. And we can take a, a bit of risk, maybe, or be more innovative in the way we structure something uh, before others can as well. And that's kind of, uh, I certainly see that as an important role for us in the market. There's not much point in us doing, you know, effectively mortgages at a slightly higher rate than NatWest. That's not really adding value to the market. Where we can add is taking a risk and helping organisations as part of that mix that you described as well. Yes, um, I want to come back later on to talk specifically about risk and risk appetite and how that encourages innovation in public services. But mm. before I do, I think a term that will be familiar to people, although they might not know exactly what it is when they think of social investment, will be a, a social impact bond or a SIB. Can you explain briefly what that is? It's like an exam question for my role. I know, I'm sorry, I've got this list of questions that I've no, to ask you. <laughs> I mean, so basically a social impact bond is a, is a structure um, that allows outside investment to pay for outcomes that, that usually a local authority um, or, uh, is wanting. So effectively it brings together in normally in some sort of vehicle, the commissioners, the providers and the, the investors, and they agree effectively on what will be paid for the delivery of certain outcomes. Um, so it's quite strict in term, normally in terms of the way it's measured, in terms of the way it's, it's structured and developed. The theory was that actually, you know, as the government, you don't have to pay the money up front. The investor pays the money up front to the providers, whoever they might be, normally charities and social enterprises. Um, but actually you pay out if the outcomes are delivered. So that that was the theory. And I think it's it's been a mixed bag, I would say, as you, people can Google Google social impact bonds and get both, you know, evangelists and, and cri critics. From our perspective, it's it's useful in some in some areas, definitely, of public service delivery, and it, it does provide kind of discipline around impact measurement and bringing those parties together can sometimes prove really useful. I think there are downsides to it, which we can maybe get into, um, and it isn't suited to all areas of work or all stages of of development as well so i think yeah. we're interested i mentioned future builders that was that was a much more simplistic approach to social investment in public services where that theory of change was much simpler which was put money into these charities and social enterprises and they will do better in public services yes. that was and that was probably too simplistic there are those who would argue that social impact bonds are too complicated and i think we're we're increasingly interested in what's in between i suppose I think they definitely have a role. I mean, I can think of a number of programs um, that it's worked really well for. And it tends to work well for kind of non-statutory, non-standard things that not everybody is doing. I think 
If if a council has a responsibility to do something, let's take councils as the case study, then they should really fund that out of revenue funding and it should be a, a paid for service. But if they're wanting to experiment with ways of solving a particular nutty issue that they have, but they don't have the budget for it right now, but yeah. they know this problem is going to cost them X in the future and they can almost predict that, then why not invite an investor and a provider and to say, look, if you can save us this money in the future, we'll give you part of the savings from that. And a really good example that I worked on in the past was a project called Pause, which is a fantastic organization that Sophie Humphreys established, gosh, must be five, six years ago now. But it, it essentially works with women who have had children repeatedly removed into care mm-hmm. because of a, a chaotic lifestyle that is very often the fault of the the male in in their life as well and essentially the social impact bond is structured that it's quite for a small cohort of people it's quite easy to predict that they will repeatedly get into this situation and the state will repeatedly have to take that child into care and the cost of that is very predictable mm-hmm. so actually intensive work with those individuals prevents that situation happening and actually results in both a better outcome for the individual and a much better outcome for the children and a saving as well. So that, I think, is probably a good example of how a SIP can work. But I I also know it takes a, a lot of effort from the commissioner, the provider and the investor as well. Yeah. And you also, you know, you have the the sort of obvious risks you have of like, you know, if you like people changing in each of those three groups, so like the yeah. commissioner change, the political leadership change, uh, the council, the the investor might move on or changes its approach. Or, and, you know, equally, the providers are all dealing with whatever they're dealing with individually. So there are definite challenges. But I think you're right. There are there are areas where I think it's worked well. Um, I think, yes, yeah, sometimes it feels like the complexities and cost and the governance and bureaucracy sort of gets away from the sort of um the provision and, and what it's meant to be about and i think the other one of the other criticisms and we is sometimes when an organization's at an earlier stage with an intervention that's much less proven then actually it's not really it's that that type of investment doesn't really work for them yeah uh, because they they might be developing something totally new that is you know feels much more risky and and probably not yet in a place where they might even be able to say well these are the definite outcomes we'll get or is as an earlier stage of sort of proving its hypothesis, really. So, so I think we're we're just interested in that spectrum of yeah, uh, what's the best forms of social investment that help support the social economy to to solve, you know, what they're interested in, but also or often the objectives or the challenges that a local authority is facing as well. So, is it government funding through innovation programs and things that has to put the money in to make that initial case to prove that this is a concept that can work? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that for a lot of social investment, and I, I will come on to this in a bit more detail later, but I, I can't hold back from asking this question <laughs> now. Um, it, it feels like social investment needs to know that there's a model there that works before it will commit. So I think in social impact bonds, there's an element of truth to that. But I think I I don't think that's true always. So I think, you know, we would definitely be prepared 
let's say that X local authority has is aware of I don't know, three areas of services where there's a need for for doing things differently. There's an opportunity. They think the social economy is the right way to go. You know, you could easily imagine a scenario where we put in some money, the local authority put in some money, maybe a third party put in some money to create a fund to invest in those organisations and the relationship with the commissioners. Maybe not as structured as a social impact bond, but in in a way that is starting to get us to that. So I don't think it's necessarily always government. And I think we would, we're certainly open to kind of, are there places where we could pilot that sort of approach actually? So where could we put our money alongside a local authority, a combined authority to try and, to try and make that happen? Yeah. Um, because I think it's, it's to, to the conversation. It's not a one size fits all on some of those things, but there yeah. are definite, there are definite and live opportunities to transform or take a totally different approach to some of the public service challenges that we're facing. I think the other bit I'd say is, you know, local authorities do invest, but often not in the sorts of things we're talking about. So they might, you know, they might invest in a shopping mall or, you know, they might put their pension funds in Iceland thing over here or whatever it might be. And, 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 you know, to be blunt, some of those haven't worked out very well and they actually, not only would they have got a better financial return if they've invested in the sorts of things we're talking about, but actually it would have been completely aligned to their local objectives as well. So I think we'd like to see more from that, whether it's public works, loan, loan boards, whether it's local government pension schemes, like actually why not invest in the solutions that are completely aligned to what you're trying to achieve locally in a way that works for you financially as well. For us, that seems like a complete no-brainer in terms of expansion. So I'm going to jump to a question I had for later on, but you've mentioned it now. So I'm interested in the changes that are around local government pension funds and things and what they can yeah. do with that, because I know you're interested in this. I mean, there was a lot in the levelling up white paper, but buried in there somewhere was was um, a proposal, really, that kind of 5% of local government pension schemes start to go into what they describe as kind of impact investment or social investment. And I think, you know, we there are the odd local authority pension scheme that's done that we've seen them invest in some both social impact bonds but also other sorts of vehicles um and i think just we would like to see that expanded i think it, there's no reason why whether it's supporting the social economy to regenerate a high street uh, take over community assets in a way that helps build the social infrastructure locally whether it's investing in the public services in the way we've talked about to uh, to do it differently because of the constraints that the local authorities are under. You know, I think just more inventive and creative use of, of the, the funds they have, you know, actually we've got a good track record, not just my organisation, but the social investment marketplace. We can kind of point to things and go, look, actually you'll get a return on this stuff. Whatever your three, four, five percent might be that you need on your pension scheme or whatever it might be, or as part of a portfolio, you can get that. But here's the stuff that's entirely relevant to your area. Um, and, and you can actually invest in those organisations and those services. And, and it's really, I mean, it's really thinking as a local authority, how do we put all our resources to work towards our objectives, right? Rather than parking your pension fund in, like you say, Iceland or, I don't know, yeah. Shell or BP or whatever it might be. I mean, you'll, there'll always be an element of that in terms of mitigating risk. But I think, you know, actually, how can we increase the amount that's, that's dedicated to what you're about? Well, it'll be interesting, actually, because as a, if I was a pension fund 
manager and thinking about impact and thinking about increasing my returns, I'd automatically be thinking about green tech and things which will return a great value. I wouldn't be thinking about the local adult social care, social enterprise that wants to do something more modest, but yet really impactful. So I think that'll be a challenge. Yeah, but I think, you know, if you if you approach it purely from a financial perspective, what are they looking for? So the fund we've got at the moment, we're guaranteeing all our investors a minimum 3% fixed return. Guaranteed, it's rock solid. We're, we're taking the risk underneath in the way we talked about earlier. You've got the government guarantee there. So actually, you can invest in pretty high impact stuff. And some of that is care and social care. But actually, you can you can sort of as part of your wider mix, you can have a pretty rock solid return as well. It's it's achievable. Um, and I think, you know, actually, it's it's also what are you comparing against? So we've seen yeah. very high profile local authority investments go catastrophically wrong and lose vast amounts of money. So actually, yeah. OK, maybe it's in property and things. And you exactly know. right. Yeah. So why why invest in a in a sort of shopping mall out of town, which post pandemic looks not great. Um, when you could be investing in a different approach to your local high street, which might be mix of housing and culture and retail, that that actually achieves your wider objectives and delivers the economics as well. You know, for me, that yeah. starts to. If I was if I was in local government, I think I'd at least be exploring those opportunities and thinking through how we go about that in the long term. Well, I think that's a very compelling pitch, and I hope that the people who are making those decisions are listening and I hope that they're, <laughs> that they're taking meetings with you because it's really important. Just to complete the circle on this part of the conversation about the role of government, the role of uh, social investors, I think just to go back to my example of pause, so I think it's it's just a very interesting case study. So it was originally funded through a government innovation program. So it was the Department for Education's uh, Innovation in Children's Social Care program. I'm sure I haven't got that title quite right, but yeah. It is what it says on the tin. Um, so it got upfront funding that it had to apply for, and that allowed the concept to be tested robustly and evidenced in a number of pilot sites. Mm-hmm. Then it was always their plan to move to a social impact bond model where they could make it work. So it, that could be a really good case study just as to how something moves from that initial development funding from a government innovation program through to becoming sustainable through the involvement of social investment. And if, if anybody's interested, Sophie Humphreys, the founder of Pause, was the very first of my podcast interviews. So it's way back number one or two. I want to talk more generally about investment and public services. So when a lot of people think of investment, especially private investment, they're thinking of things like private provision of children's residential care that costs mm-hmm. fortune or private equity ownership of care homes for older people. Um, how, how do you make sure that, for example, council elected members, you can differentiate good investment from external funding that is purely for profit? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the it's about what the organisations are about and, and who they are and what they've done, really. So, like, I mean, I think, as I said earlier, we're a we're a charity. Um, so there is no there are no shareholders. <laughs> yeah. um, I, have a, I have a deeply committed board, but um, they don't own anything. And, it, it, and, the, and above us, there isn't kind of sovereign wealth funds or anything else investing in us. So um, I think also it's about the organizations that run those those services. So I think, you know, we we will look hard at the ownership 
Um, so actually, you could argue that there's a social impact just in the ownership of some of these services being in charitable or social hands. But also we pay attention as councils would to external accreditations and quality assessments as well, right? So mm-hmm. as an investor, we'll look at the CQC stuff. We'll look at Ofsted a bit, if that's appropriate. We'll look at the independent um, inspectors and, and so on and what they're saying about the quality of provision as well. So I think there's a range of, of things there. I think we're definitely interested in, you know, it, it relates to what we've just been talking about, which is about the investment working towards the goals you're, you want to see. And, you know, we have to think about, are we, do we think it's right for children's services, for care homes to be owned in short-term focused, profit-making investment? You know, my answer to that is no. I don't I, think I'm shaking my head as well. Just <laughs> you know, I'll be quite clear about that. But then, but then I think rather than just kind of go, we think this is wrong for lots of reasons. And there are lots of examples we could both point to about the, for me, demonstrate where that's sort of filtered into the quality of, of how it impacts on individual people and, and way they're treated. But I think for us, the challenge is, OK, well, what's your answer to that? What's the alternative? So how do we get to a point where we're a sufficient scale, I guess, where we can genuinely be going, well, look, actually, all of these care homes could be in social ownership. And here's how you might structure that. And here are the mix of providers that we think could do that and the investment required might come from these sources. So I think that's the sort of conversation we want to get into because it's it's fine and right. And I think there are a bunch of campaigning organisations that do that, that are kind of going, this is not right and this is not heading in the right direction. But actually, we also need the, I can't remember who it is. I think it's, it's someone's someone's credo, which is sort of the price of a, the price of a critique is a constructive alternative, right? So you can't just come with the criticism. You have to have, some constructive alternative right lined up so i always kind of have that in my head of kind of like okay yes we're right to critique this but what's our what's what we're bringing to the table actually so we're certainly exploring that and interested in that and and i think it is you've seen some of that in social care flow through the kind of winterbourne stuff and so on and uh, and i think there are other other concerns about some of that and so i think we we need to be well placed not just us as an organization again but as a sector about what what are our proposals on how that would be done differently? And what would we take to a local authority or a combined authority that would help them get this to a different place that gives them much more comfort in the way you describe? Yes. Um, so I, I promised we'd come back to talk about risk a bit more. So um, just to set the scene a bit, if we think of generally how investment advances us generally as humans. So you have the, the whole concept of venture capital which is essentially private funding that a lot of the all of the big brands of the day that people will have heard of google amazon facebook twitter you name it at the start when they were unproven and Mm -hmm. nobody was sure whether it would really work or not venture capital investors would have come in and said right we we will invest in this and but we're also investing in 10 other things and we know that maybe one of them will work and we're prepared to take that risk because the return will be will be fantastic for us. Now, there's a challenge in the social investment space in that those exponential returns are not there. So that reduces the appetite to plant 100 seeds and hope that maybe five to 10 of them actually come to something. So in my mind, that leads public services to fall behind in terms of a culture of innovation and advancement and experimentation. And I'm just really interested in your 
thoughts on that? Because the blame doesn't lie in any one place because public services and those who work in public services tend to be quite risk averse as well because we're dealing with people's lives rather than just whether this particular social media channel will catch on or not. It's much more serious than that. So there's a problem there. Or maybe it's not a problem, actually. Maybe I'm just kind of it's unfair to compare the two. But I would love to see more riskier investment going into public services that would allow those massive step changes that we see in other parts of the world. Yeah, so I think I mean, I think you're right. So there there are a number of um, there's a number of challenges, I suppose, with kind of importing Silicon Valley into this sort of world i mean one really simple one is most social enterprises and charities i won't get into legal structures and definitions to save the audience falling asleep but like you know can't do shares in this so equity investment is not always an option let's put it that way often not an option but i think what you can do is is some of the characteristics of that sort of investment so you know i mentioned being a patient investor earlier that's a big part of it um flexibility uh, and and just for those who don't know what patient investing means well, it's not like a patient that goes to a gp it's no 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 so patient in the sense of um length of time so the average yeah. loan length on our future builders fund that i mentioned for example is 14 years you know so we look to the long term and actually a lot of social sector organizations that the transformation they're seeking to make is a long-term game so i think you can give patients and you can therefore give you can also be flexible in the way you manage that you can you can respond to that journey. So we talk about not not necessarily trying to over-design the product, but actually give flexibility in our management and our relationship afterwards. And then I think you can get to some of the, the ability to invest in the new piece of technology, the growth, the acquisition of a platform, the the merger with a with a with a close partner or whatever it might be. I think there is something about it in terms of the innovation. I think I was I was on a leadership program once and I remember we inevitably at that point you were all the speakers were coming in from like Google and Twitter and everything. And um, and the Google guy was saying, oh, you know, we do 20 percent time where they get one day to. Yeah. yeah. That one. And the guy next to me was a, was a, a chief exec who ran. I mean, basically uh, services in the south of England that were for people with really severe traumatic brain injury and and incredibly vulnerable people with a range of 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 physical and mental challenges really that they were facing and he was just he just sort of turned to me and said yeah i can't really give the team friday off um not sure that's going to work and he was sort of being pithy but it did bring home to me like you know not not everything is applicable to our world right and as you say also the pace of it so a lot of those things can sail super quickly because they are an app they're a bit of tech and there are bits of our world that the sort of tech for good world and you know there are funds that are looking at that in different ways but a lot of it is people based and and therefore that stuff takes a lot of time and you know you can't take as you said earlier the risk with people's lives but i think what you can do is provide organizations you know, the flexibility and capacity and ability to invest internally that allows them to do some of that stuff. So that could be, yeah, coming to us and going, we think a new database will allow us to do X, Y, and Z, and we need to invest 50 grand in it to to release, you know, 100 and 150 grand's worth of per year of efficiencies over the next three years or whatever it is, or we want to do a joint venture in in this field. And I think what we can do is is take that long-term horizon with them um, and support them in that way. But we're never going to be in the 
will back 10 and nine can fail? Because actually, in some of these cases, nine can't fail. No, I completely yeah. agree and I completely accept that. It's just, I mean, I think there is there is definitely room for some more uh, government innovation programs like the social care innovation program that DFE ran. I think that that is a really good way of safe experimentation. Yeah. And it, it can prove concepts which can then look for funding from other places, can be part of business as usual eventually. And I think we need to see some more of that. Yeah. And the and the other bit is and the other bit that can provide innovation is where you can put grants alongside some of the, the investment. Because, you know, like we alongside our loan fund at the moment, we have a two million grant fund, which is purely for black and minority led organisations because they've been systemically and historically underinvested in and and really excluded, not always by design, but but certainly excluded from accessing social investment. So what we're doing is providing grant alongside the loan, yeah. that again, enables them to invest in the core of what they do um, and and use that incredibly flexibly to build that capacity, take take the risks, invest a bit in the team and so on. So, yeah, really trying to think through how we can sit alongside organisations and allow them to do that as well. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's it's just for me, it's about what are the characteristics of that sort of world that are, that are applicable and how do we do that within the sort of slightly different context we're operating in. I mean, very. I mean, to be fair, a very different context. So yeah, I appreciate all of that. I haven't had a call from Elon Musk offering to buy us, Andrew. So you know. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm really surprised he hasn't. He hasn't already. Actually, it, it seems like a logical next step on on his path. Um, so. so I I want to bring in a, a discussion point that on the previous podcast with the Charlie Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank, she and I spoke about. Um, it's about what level geographically investment in, and innovation and in new things happen. So, and this is also drawn from various conversations with council you know, chief execs as well. And it's pretty clear to me that councils and combined authorities and those sub-national government levels are where the focus on, on innovation and trying new things is and really should be actually as well. So if you were a, a council chief exec, how would you be, um, with that in mind, how, how would you be trying to think about the value of social investment and external investment? Yeah, I think you're right. And, and uh, sort of just to go back to the original bit, like it, we're really interested in place-based investment, I suppose, is the sort of the language around it, which is a bit stupid, really, because obviously we've always invested in places. So like, but 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 what's the... I mean, what we have to think about is also what what sort of size of geography does it have to be to sort of make the resourcing stack up as well? Like, you know, actually, if it's a very small area, it's quite challenging to run all the infrastructure and build up or have the pipeline necessary to make a fund work sometimes. So there's that pragmatic aspect to it. But I think if I was that local government chief exec, I'd be thinking, Okay, so what are the opportunities for me to bring investment into our area that supports our social economy and local economy more broadly to 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 achieve what we're trying to achieve? You know, and I think there's a range of ways they could do that. That's that could be about using some of their investment opportunities that we talked about earlier. It could be about the likes of us coming in and putting money alongside a another local fund or investor. Um, it could be about sort of investing even in the engagement with the social economy, because, as you know, one other thing that's happened as, you know, as the constraints of resources across local government have, have happened, you know, 
the ability for commissioners and procurement professionals, if you like, to, to yeah. do that engagement and co-design has also shrunk because they've, they've just got so much on. So I think thinking through the different avenues and opportunities they could do, but we'd be really open to that sort of conversation of kind of like, well, what would, what would it look like if we brought 5 million quid in here and you brought 10 million and a local funder put in 2 million and we worked with these three social organizations and we had a fund that might invest in their capability that set them up in a different place for the next five years. You know, that's, that for me is a quite an exciting conversation to have and in the, and is achievable for, for, for local authorities or a combination of local authorities, I think. Um, so that's the sort of thing I would be thinking about. And then maybe it does, it does vary a bit depending on how strong charities and social enterprises in their area are as well and the infrastructure that's there and that kind of stuff. So what are you building upon? But that's the sort of thing I would be. I, I completely agree. And I guess one of the reasons I'm asking is that um, a lot of councils are working on leveling up fund bids at the minute. But actually what possibly is more more linked to this is they're also preparing UK shared prosperity fund investment plans. So every council, either districts, combined authorities or unitaries um, that aren't in a combined authority have received an allocation of some funding. They have to prepare an investment plan. Now, the one of the key some of the key areas there around investing in communities, investing in people and skills I would love to see some of these plans have a social investment element to them as well to show yeah. that you know there isn't an inbuilt requirement for match funding, but wouldn't they be so much more powerful if you could say, right, well, we're going to take this government funding and we're going to put the risk capital in and let's get some external investment to really multiply it up as well. So I'd love people to think a little bit more creatively about that. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And I think, yeah, it hasn't got the same match requirement that it used to have in, in European days. But um, I think we would be in, incredibly open to that because I think it's it's also back to the previous conversation about sometimes that external investment can take a bit more risk and and might be able to do things that the pure local government on its own can't actually at times or, or can expand the remit of that or it can connect them into other sources and so on. And and yeah, not just social investment, but I think also thinking about impact investment and some of the and, and like I said, also the local philanthropic environments. There might be a community foundation or there might be other aspects of that. So really thinking quite broadly about what's the mix we can bring to the table, because none of us are going to solve it on our own. Um, so, Nick, as, as a final question. So I think that you've made a fantastic impact on this sector in your time, both at, particularly when I know you at SEUK and now SIB. So what bit of advice would you give to someone working in this area who wants to try and make an impact in the way that you have? Oh, so it's, it's a tricky question, isn't it? And interesting. But thank you for saying that. It's very kind. I think um, I will say the sort of very obvious thing that anything I've managed to achieve has only been because of all the people I've worked with. And that's probably the one bit of advice I think is I think treat everyone uh with with respect uh, mm -hmm. and 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 with interest so i think have some curiosity so i think if you're if you're listening for 80 percent of the conversation it's never a bad thing i know i've not not done that on the podcast but i hope that's what was well expected. that's not the purpose of it, um, but yeah, it, 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 it would be a very stir podcast if it would have been some long gaps but um so i think really i i'd still try and listen and learn um and i think treating treating everyone with kind of respect that 
you know, they all have something to offer you. I think, you know, we you can tell a lot about a person, how they speak to the receptionist in your organization or the, yeah. the lowest level. And that's still true. And also, actually, because our sector isn't massive, sometimes those people you might run into five or 10 years later, actually, and they might be in a different role. So, yeah, I think those would be the things that uh, stay curious, stay learning, stay listening and, and stay a bit humble about where you're at, I think, would be the certainly the things I try and do. If my team were here, they might not say that I'm always successful at that, but that's certainly how I try and be. Nick, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Really great to speak, Andrew. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick as much as I did, and I certainly learned a lot. And I hope you would agree that there is something really here that can support public services. So going back to my original thought about whether it's possible to capture some of that Silicon Valley entrepreneurial investment magic, let's call it that. Um, I'm not sure that it is. Um, It's not really the same environment at all, but I was very encouraged by some of what we discussed about how the local government pension schemes will be encouraged to spend a proportion on impact investing and those are very very big funds so that could make a real impact i was also encouraged by how nick described his organization's attitude towards risk and the fact that they were willing to invest i think he mentioned up to a quarter of a million unsecured which is a big step but From broader conversations with social investors, I'm still not convinced that there is that appetite to invest in things which are completely new. I think a lot of investors like to see models that have been tried and tested. And quite often, as we discussed, this is where government has to step in and run innovation programs. And I think that they will be incredibly important um, that government keeps supporting innovation in public services and keeps allowing the trial of new ideas that that might not work. But I think one thing is absolutely clear, and all of you out there trying to deliver public services will understand this, that tweaking around the edges isn't necessarily going to achieve what we need to achieve to make public services sustainable in the long term. So we do need big ideas and we do need the funding to trial those ideas and to learn from the mistakes and what doesn't work so that ideas can be improved and those radical ideas, which is what this podcast is supposed to be all about, can be generated and that there's an environment that supports that. So thank you very much for your time and I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to never miss a future episode. 